This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Uh, Eric Scopel is not on the show today, and that's because we're bringing in a guest, and it's one of our favorite guests on the show, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports, Brandon Huffman is on the show today. Brandon, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm good. Good to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me on. So it really feels like from a recruiting standpoint, that's what we're going to talk primarily on this show about today. Um, Oregon is kind of in flux where there's still like that big 2021 recruit out there. They're also focused on 2022, trying to make evals and, and intros on 2023. So let's start with, I guess, the, probably the most obvious. Um, what's the latest in, from your perspective with the number one recruit in the country in 2021, JTT? A lot of patience. That's the, the best thing to say because that recruitment is still at minimum four weeks away from being resolved. More realistically, we're looking at about eight weeks till it's resolved. And that's largely because he has insisted all along he wants to take his five official visits. June will allow that to happen. However, he is playing his senior year of basketball at Eastside Catholic. That season will wrap the first week in June. He'll graduate that first week in June. And then I anticipate all five official visits will kind of happen, kind of happen, boom, 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 with maybe a, a day or two layoff uh, between each so he can kind of recalibrate. I would anticipate a decision is made by the end of June, and he ends up on a college campus in July. But like I said, we're still looking at least four, probably six weeks realistically till he gets on the road and at least another eight weeks until a decision is made at the soonest. Now, Oregon feels like a player here, but they're maybe not like the player um, in this recruitment. Um, what can they do to overcome Ohio State or Alabama or any of the other schools that are in the mix um, and try and what, I guess, what, what can they do to, to get the number one recruit in the country to sign with them? Is, is it simply just getting them here for an official visit and knocking that out of the park and hoping that they do a better impression than everybody else? I mean, I, I don't know that the official visits are going to be the end-all, be-all for the Pac-12 schools. I think those are crucial for Alabama and Ohio State, largely because he's never been to Columbus, he's never been to Ohio State, and of his family, he's the only one who's been to Alabama. He went there for a camp right. geez, almost three years ago. Uh, so it'll be an opportunity for him to see it a little bit more in depth with his family. But I think the three Pac-12 schools, the one thing that they all have working for them is proximity. Now, Washington has obviously the most obvious proximity being in his backyard. USC is the furthest of the three Pac-12 schools, but his mom's from Southern California. She has a number of families still in Southern California. And then you have Oregon, which is kind of that healthy medium. It's far enough away, yet still close enough to home where it's a drive. He was just on campus, what, two weeks ago yep. uh, for a practice. Um, the last unofficial visit he took 
besides one to Washington before the pandemic was to Oregon for a game in 2019. So there's plenty of familiarity with Oregon. I think the thing that they just keep hammering is, you know, their utilization of him in their defense. It's using Tim DeRuiter and his background at Texas A&M and at Cal, uh, the featuring of the pass rushers that he had when he was at his previous stops as a DC, when he was at Fresno State, and really selling, you know, hey, you may not be the premier pass rusher on this team in 2021, but 2022 and 2023 might be different. Um, Really hammering that home and, you know, then just hoping that, JT wants to stay in the region, but doesn't want to stay right in his backyard. I, I just think that, you know, the official visits for the three Pac-12 schools aren't going to move the needle nearly as much as they're going to have to hope it doesn't move the needle with Alabama and Ohio State. Sure. So what's the type of player that these schools are, would potentially be getting? Like what – He's obviously a really good player because we have him ranked as the number one player in the country. But just what makes him so special to, to have him better than everybody else? Out there? I think it's a unique blend of size and speed and power that he has. You know, a guy his size shouldn't move as fleet of feet as he does. When you watch him play tight end, it's like watching an elite NFL pass catcher run. You go back to his first game of the 2021 season when he's a senior, he had a, he took a little pop pass against uh, O'Day and just simply outran guys and carried guys and broke tackles. And I've said it for three years. If he just played offense, he'd be the number one tight end in the country in this class. That's how good of a receiver he is. That's how well he runs. But now you put that on the defensive side of the ball. This is a guy that at various times has dropped into coverage as a safety, dropped into coverage as a linebacker, rushes the quarterback, gets out in the flat on a running back. His freshman year, I remember a game where he tackled the running back for a loss. The running back took a catch in the flat. He gets into the backfield, takes him down. The next play, he gets a sack of the quarterback rest in the pasture. The third play, he drops into coverage and gets the tight end for a short game. And just his ability to cover, to get to the backfield, get after the quarterback, it doesn't really matter what he's matched up against. He can run with the tight end. He can run with the running back. You know, he can press the running back, and that running back never has a chance of getting open. He can get to a quarterback, and he just does it in a variety of ways with his hands down, with his standing up uh, in, in coverage. I mean, he's just such a unique player and how well he moves athletically for his size, it's just really uncanny. Moving to the 2022 class and beyond, dead period is lifted June 1st. And it's, if you, if air quotes here, the start of recruiting season again begins. And coaches can go out and do camps, they can make evals. Uh, players will come on campus for official and unofficial visits it really feels like this is going to set up for like a old school wild, wild West movie type scenario where it's just left and right. Things are happening on the fly. How do you just not Oregon specific, but just college football recruiting specifically? Like it does June feel like it's going to be a tidal wave of news. It, it is. It's going to be a complete, basically explosion of everything we've lacked for the last 15 months, all happening in a one month span. You know, you take in college camps, then you throw in official visits, and then you throw in unofficial visits, not just for 2022s, but for 23s and 24s that are now chomping at the bit to get out on the road. I mean, we're we're seeing uh, tweets of 
organizations doing college tours. They're, they're basically doing these, these caravans, visiting a bunch of schools. So you throw those in, you throw in the official visitors, you throw in the camps. And what normally is a pretty busy spring from mid-April, probably let's, you know, let's say all the way to the end of July, even though that, that summer, we'll consider that part of that spring because you have the evaluation period from April 15th to May 30th in a normal year. Then you have the June camp period. Then you have the dead period in July, but in that month, usually you have the opening finals. You have the Elite 11 finals. You have that one week quiet period where schools like Oregon host camps. So really from mid-April till the end of July, it's probably the busiest cycle. Now cram that all into a 30-day period yeah. when you know the gate's been closed for the previous 15 months and now the gate's getting open and you got three, four years plus you still have the number one player in the country in 2021 in his visits. I mean, he right there is almost on par with the other 300, 400 guys that want to get on the road and take official visits. So, you know, college coaches are panicking a little bit. I talked to a few of them and they're excited to be able to get some guys to campus. They're excited to be able to get out to a couple camps, but there's also this feeling like, Hey, there's a lot of guys coming to campus. We have zero interest in a lot of guys coming to campus. We have zero plans to recruit and evaluate but they're coming with their team or with their travel program and wanting to visit. And those are the guys we end up wasting most of our time with on those unofficial visits with rather than the guys that we really want. So they're trying to manage how they're going to fit all their time and energy to the guys they really want while having to sort through the kids that they don't want at the camps that they're at, at the unofficial visits that they're hosting. So it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating month once we, it actually gets here, you know, barring anything unforeseen happening, like, you know, the NCA once again, pulling the plug. Yeah. That, that I hadn't thought of that aspect of, you know, the, the seven on seven team that rolls through campus to show, you know, their, their players, the facility, and there's 40 guys there and, and school a is recruiting maybe seven of them, but they have mm-hmm. to, they have to devote time to all 40 players. That's, I hadn't thought of that. That, that that's going to make it even crazier. I'm sure. Um, do you feel like this is going to put a real stress on the staffs that are really good at evaluating over the ones that maybe struggle in that department? Um, or does it hammer home just the ability to, you know, for guys to quickly figure out who's good and who's not? It, it, it feels like there could be a lot of misses in this class. Yeah. And I think we're going to see how good people's evaluations were in 2021 when they didn't get a spring evaluation period and they couldn't get out on the road. And there was a lot of basically online dating that was going on between recruits and coaches where everything was limited to Zooms and FaceTime. Now you're at least getting a chance to evaluate, but this is where a lot of misevaluations happen. You see a guy, he looks good. He can't play, but he looks good. And you can't not take him. You can't miss on him because there's always the potential. Well, what if he turns out to be really good with as big as he is, with as good as he looks? The film doesn't back it up. And I almost feel like college coaches are looking for reasons to take more projects by saying, let's get a guy who got who passes the eye test. You know, we can every college coach thinks he's Picasso, so he can take this blank canvas and turn him into a masterpiece. Well, the one thing we're going to find out with the 2021 is a lot more coaches had to just go with their gut. 
They had to go with their evaluation based strictly on film. They couldn't be alert just by the eye test. They had to go by what they saw on film. There's a lot of late bloomers that didn't get the opportunity to get recruited because of that. Now you go into 2022, the the teams that will be successful are the ones that can evaluate, that have a history of evaluation that they're nailing, but also the player development is still key. I think where it really benefits is the schools that have the resources of a bigger staff, where they have multiple player personnel type of guys, whether it's a DPP plus some players, plus some analysts, Uh, you you have the resources from a staff perspective. When you do have a a seven on seven team or a travel organization bringing guys to campus, you're not stretched thin. You don't have two guys trying to keep 40 guys happy. You have 12 guys that are keeping 40 guys busy. Um, I think that when you have a staff of, you know, an administration staff, when you have a lot of guys that are, you know, not assistant coaches, but are in that analyst role, in the personnel role, that really helps with the evaluation. Coaches will then know, hey, these are the guys I really need to focus my energy. And so I think it becomes more of a case of the haves versus the have nots, more so than the schools that really do a good job of evaluation and those just kind of throw offers out there. Yeah, Oregon Oregon has about, I think, nine or ten guys in their department right now that are uh, full-time recruiting operations guys or analysts in that department. So uh, if you're unfamiliar, Oregon is one of those schools that Brandon's talking about that has the size of a staff to to handle these types of things to allow the assistant coaches, you know, opportunities you know, to spend strategically with who they go after. Um, Brandon, there's six guys in the state of Washington – for the 2022 recruiting class that have scholarship offers from the ducks. Um, I think all of them have pretty serious interest in, in Oregon. Um, But before I get to some of the offensive linemen guys and defensive guys, Tobias Merriweather, you recently did an update with him four-star receiver. I was kind of surprised he didn't mention Oregon. It's one of those recruitments where, you know, I have felt for probably the last three months that this was going to be a Stanford Notre Dame battle and Oregon and Washington both felt that there were reasons to be confident with him. And part of that was because of the proximity, you know, he's kind of smack dab between University of Washington and the University of Oregon and both had reasons you know, to feel good. Oregon was kind of the school he grew up more watching. Washington, he played for FSP 7-on-7 with Sam Hubert, who's now at the University of Washington. And yet, as he was one of two players with offers from all 12 Pac-12 schools, it was the Notre Dame offer that kind of was the significant one for him. He had gone out there for a visit back in the fall of 2019 and was really enamored by Notre Dame. Then the Irish offer, they set up the first official visit, but it was a Stanford offer that kind of shifted him away from the Pacific Northwest schools to Stanford being the school. Washington State's been kind of a wild card. USC has been a constant. But yeah, this was the first time I talked to him where Oregon was was barely mentioned. And I think that was one of those where it, it wasn't necessarily by design, but I think he is so focused on Stanford and Notre Dame. And yeah, maybe some other schools that are complimenting those uh, for potential visits. But it just seems like the two Northwest schools that look like it might be a battle between them have kind of faded to black a little bit with him. Um, but I, I felt for at least since he got the Stanford offer, this was an Irish Cardinal battle. So I think Oregon will redirect its resources and attentions elsewhere. Right. And Washington kind of got that 
I, I don't know online dating because it existed after I was married, <laughs> but I think they were swiped left on a while ago. So they've already moved on. Sure. Sure. Um, Josh Connerly Jr. is probably, he's a five-star, 15th best player in the country, offensive tackle from Rainier Beach up in Seattle. He feels like the guy that's probably the highest rated player right now that Oregon legitimately has a really good chance at getting. Um, what What's your read right now on, on Connerly's recruitment and just kind of the schools that stand out? So he's going to drop a top 12 the first week or second week in May. Uh, but there are four or five schools that I really think are, well, there's three schools that I think are going to be at the forefront of it. That's Oregon, Washington, and USC. Then I think there's going to be about three national programs that are going to be pretty involved. That's Oklahoma, Alabama, and probably Texas. I won't count out Michigan. Uh, Michigan will be a factor there. Courtney Morgan, who had been at Fresno State and who signed Connolly's close friend and teammate, uh, Franco Gratton at Fresno State, is now the director of player personnel at Michigan. So they'll probably be in there too. But this is what one of those where I think it's going to come down to the two Northwest schools. I won't count out USC for him at, at all. Uh, and I think there will be a national program or two that'll be in there, but he is a player I think stays in the Pacific Northwest when it's all said and done. And I think Oregon is very much a factor in it for him, but I also won't count out Washington at all. He's a Seattle kid to the core and he hasn't, when other kids at his school have left and transferred to other high schools, he stayed at Rainier beach because of his love for his city. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind when it's looking at college is how much does the city play a factor in him playing there for the next three or four years after his high school career? There's been a, a, a ton of talent that plays the offensive line that's come from the Seattle area. Um, is it safe to say Zach Banner was maybe like the best guy to no. come out? He wasn't because I had said from the very beginning and I said it for three years, Josh Garnett was better than Zach Banner. Now, okay. Zach Banner is in the NFL, but if you look at their college careers, Josh Garnett was on three Rose Bowl teams, was the Outland Trophy Award winner, was a first round pick, was the most dominant offensive lineman in college football his senior year on those great Stanford teams right at the beginning of David Shaw's. Banner had a solid career, but Garnett in high school was better. Garnett in college was better, and injuries had just really stopped him when he got to the NFL. But if we're going to go back, you know, 15 years, David DeCastro kind of gets the nod as being the best offensive lineman in what he was in high school, college, and the NFL. Uh, what do those two guys have in common? Well, you know, both were interior guys and just were dominant interior linemen. Tackles, you know, it was an interesting study a year ago, 24-7 did a study going into the 2020 draft where I think Jedrick Wills and Tristan Wirfs and a couple other linemen were 300 plus pounds in high school. You had to go back to 2016 for the last first rounder who weighed over 300 pounds in high school. And that was Josh Garnett. But, you, you know, so what it is, is a lot of these big guys in high school, guys like a banner, guys like Walker Williams, you know, they have to spend time maybe losing weight, getting more flexible. So I, I would go the combination of DeCastro and Garnett as the two best to come from the area over the last 15 years. Uh, but this is the best class that the state has had from offensive linemen since that 2012 class. When you had Banner, you had Garnett, uh, you had um, Walker Williams, who went to Wisconsin and started for a couple of years. Uh, Jake Eldrin Camp went to or uh, went to Washington and started for a couple of years. This class, there's depth, there's top end talent, and there's a lot of really good players in the middle. 
Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask where does kind of like Connerly fit into this mix? I would say that that Connerly might have more upside than any lineman the state has produced in the last fifteen years, and I say that you know comparing him a little bit to Banner. That Banner's biggest thing is he was kind of just this baby giraffe, as massive as he was. He still had a baby giraffe to his game where he didn't quite know what he was doing. He just was bigger than everybody. Connerly is that guy that he's at 260. Now, you, we've seen a lot of these offensive linemen, not just in Washington, but on the West Coast. They put on some bad weight over the pandemic. And guys that were maybe 300, 290 as sophomores are now 330, 340, and they're trying to lose their weight. Connerly, because he plays competitive basketball as an AAU guy, as a hooper at Rainier Beach, he's always been in that 260, 270 range. You look at him, he's still thin. He runs like a tight end. This is a guy that I think college coaches are salivating over because they can put the good weight on him when he gets to college. So I, I would say, you know, you have that Josh Garnett, David DeCastro, Foster Serrell type of top three holy trinity in the Northwest over the last 15 years uh, in terms of what they were as high school players. But then I would put Josh Connolly in that same breath. And I think his upside is probably greater than those three. You brought up the fact that just this entire class in the state of Washington is pretty good. Is there any other guy that you feel like maybe they're not the leaders, but Hey, this is a, this is a guy that Oregon's going to be in and until the very end. Well, I, I think that, you know, a guy like Malik Ogbo is going to be really high on Oregon all the way to the end. Now, I've said for a while that I think he's the one Washington lineman most likely to lead the Pac-12 footprint. But I also do know that Malik is very high on Oregon. He's got a great relationship with the offensive line coach, uh, Alex Murbell, and with Mario Cristobal. And he has said numerous times, you know, one of the things that makes Oregon so appealing to him is that their head coach is an offensive line guy. And that's something that is, you know, when you talk to a lot of these offensive linemen in this class, that's one of the things that they notate that, you know, you can't get any more offensive line friendly than a staff that has the head coach as an O-lineman. So Malik was planning to go down to Oregon for the spring game. Obviously, that won't happen now with uh, the inability to have fans there. But I anticipate that he'll visit probably in June. Um, I anticipate that, you know, he made camp with them in July. I don't know that he'll use an official visit to Oregon. I don't think he's going to use any official visits in the Pac-12. I think he's going to use those all nationally. And in June, he's already got visits to Miami, Oklahoma, and LSU. But I think Oregon's going to have a very big say in him all the way to the end. And then I would still kind of keep an eye on Deshaun Misa. I think that there's still a possibility that Oregon gets at least a visit from him. I know Boise State has become real prominent for him, largely because he's got a great relationship with Andy Avalos, who offered him at Boise State, offered him at Oregon. And then Jerron Johnson, the new DBs coach at Boise State, uh, is the former defensive backs coach at Eastside Catholic. Uh, but I, I think probably... Malik Ogbo is the one that Oregon fans need to keep the closest eye on. Now, shifting to the state of Oregon, um, Oregon has a couple of guys currently committed in this class. It's also a really strong class in the state of Oregon. Um, mm -hmm. Pacific Northwest from a, a, a whole region area is really deep this year. Trey John Williams and Amarion Winston, two guys that are committed to the Ducks. Uh, what's your thoughts on Trey John Williams and also Amarion that you had an opportunity? I think you watched both of them play this year, right? I did. Yes. Yeah. I've seen both play. Uh, gosh, that would have been first weekend this month back over Easter weekend. What, what's, what's your thoughts on both these guys that, that are committed to Oregon? 
So with Amarion, it's just a matter of, you know, figuring out what is he going to play? Is he going to be a down lineman? Is he going to be a linebacker? You know, he's gotten bigger. And a lot of it was weight that he put on. And he admitted that he put on some weight over the last year. But is that by design? I mean, he's always been a big guy by nature, bigger than Lamar, bigger than Elijah. Just his, his body carries more weight. So does that mean that he's going to end up being a guy who puts his hand on the ground that's a possibility. But does he end up becoming a linebacker? Well, he needs to lose a little bit of weight. He's still a four-star with us, but is he a defensive end? Is he a linebacker? That's going to be the big question for him and how he's going to be utilized. Trey John Williams, there's no mistaking. That kid's going to be a safety, and he's going to be a very good safety for Oregon. Reminds me a lot of Javon Holland coming out of high school in that he could be an elite pass catcher, an elite receiver if his team needed him for that, if a college program needed him for that. But his heart's on defense. He's got incredible ball skills. He can play corner if he needs to. He can play nickel. He can play free safety. He can you know, play center field in, in such a high level. Uh, you know, He's a great story because he's the first PIL kid to be invited to the All-American Bowl since, I think, in Dominican Sud. 15, that would have been what, 16, 17 years ago uh, when he was invited. So, you know, Trajan is not just a, a really good football player, but, you know, when you talk to him and the people around him, he's kind of an inspiration to those kids in the PIL that you don't have to be a, you know, Central Catholic or a Jesuit to get attention. You can be at a PIL school and he's a hooper as well. Um, you know, you, you look at, Oregon uh, this year in their class with, you know, Trajan Williams at number two, Lamar Washington at number four, Lamar Washington's got double digit offers for basketball and they're at the same school. I know he was a player that Don Johnson, who's now the director of player personnel at Oregon was super high on, but the question for Lamar was, was he going to go the basketball route or is he going to play football? And I think that's been the biggest hesitance why Oregon hasn't offered him. They were able to offer Trajan Williams when the, um, the previous relationship, whatever the IADP, I think is what it's called, by the NCAA was passed. But I think with Lamar, the reason they haven't pursued him as heavily football-wise is because he's got such a mindset of, I'm going to play basketball in college, whether that might be as his primary sport or whether that be something that he does. Now, this isn't like when they offered JT for hoops. Like Lamar may just skip football altogether and go play basketball. So, you know, there's a possibility that Oregon could have had maybe three guys in this class. Um, Darius Clemens in the mix, you know, if you add him, they could have four guys in this class from in-state if they pursued Lamar Washington. They do have an offer out to Andrew Savianeus. So it's not crazy to think if they did offer Lamar Washington late, that Oregon could do a clean sweep of the top five players in the state. Now, that was going to be my question is, I guess just you I mean maybe you answered it. Oregon could be in a position where, like you said, they they get five verbal commitments, and it's been a long time um, since that has happened where they've gone after that many guys. What's what do you think the holdup is with Lamar Washington and and getting his offer from Morgan? Because he's the one guy of the top five that doesn't have an offer. It feels like he kind of fits maybe the the need of an outside linebacker in, in this class for Oregon. Is it because he's a basketball guy too and they're not sure if he wants to play hoops and he's not probably good enough to play at Oregon from mm-hmm. a basketball standpoint? Or, or is there something else that's holding up an offer you feel like? So that's really what it boils down to. You know, the, the fact that he has such a high level of basketball ability that, you know, he's got power five, high, I guess in basketball they call them high major offers. You know, he's got an offer from TCU out of the Big 12. He's got an offer from Oregon State out of the Pac-12. He's got, you know, a number of football offers, but 
he and Marquise Cook are best friends. And I think Marquise, I think it goes by Mookie. He's a top 10 player in the country for his class and an elite hooper. And so I think the hoop dreams are something that Lamar just can't get out of his mind. You know, you look back at the beginning of this season and Lamar Washington was nowhere to be seen the first two, three weeks for Jefferson because he was at a basketball showcase in Arizona. And so that tells you how much basketball is factoring in here. I did an article with him last week and he even said there that he hasn't made up his mind yet if he's going to play football and basketball or just basketball. The one common trend there is basketball. He will play basketball in college. It's just going to be a matter of does it complement football or is it replace football in the sport he plays exclusively. And that goes back to what I think you just said earlier uh, about, you know, he's a good basketball player, but he might not be an Oregon level basketball player. So, and with football, I think it just comes down to Oregon would rather pursue the sure things rather than the guys that might commit. You miss out on a couple other guys. When you're a high profile program like Oregon, every spot counts. So you don't want a guy to take a spot that doesn't allow you to get another guy only for that same guy to then say, Hey, I'm not going to play football in college. Then you're really in a way bad way. We'll wrap it up with this. Um, Brandon, your thoughts on Oregon's 2022 uh, recruiting class as it is right now, it's currently uh, ranked 19th in the country. Number one in the PAC 12 duck fans are hoping that they can string now three years in a row or excuse me, four years in a row of, of leading the conference and recruiting. Um, just what's your big picture thoughts of this class and where it could maybe go in, in the next six or seven months? Well, obviously, I think it's going to just continue to get stronger. I mean, what's the most fascinating thing here is of their eight commits, only one's from California. And if there's been a state that, you know, and, and none from Arizona, and if there have been a state or two that, Oregon has really done well the last few years. It's in the state of Arizona and it's in the state of California. And right now they've only got a commitment from Grayson Halton out of San Diego. Uh, now that said, they continue their dominance in the state of, or in the, the city of San Diego, you know, a year after getting Byron Cardwell, despite being a late, 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 late offer that shows you the power of the Oregon offer for Cardwell. He had offers from almost every PAC 12 school you can imagine, plus national programs. Oregon offered him when Kyron Ware Hudson flipped to USC and that allowed them to move seven McGee to the slot and then got Cardwell's commitment. Well, Grayson Halton's his former teammate and they're the crystal ball favorite for another elite prospect from San Diego, Jalil Tucker. There was a time two years ago where Grayson Halton, Jalil Tucker and Byron Cardwell were all on the same high school team at St. Augustine. Since then, Cardwell transferred to Morris, Jalil Tucker transferred to Lincoln, Halton stayed at St. Augustine, but those three guys all played together uh, a couple of years ago, and there's a very good chance that all three of those guys end up playing together in college. So if you look at, you know, the crystal ball for Oregon, obviously a guy like a Jalil Tucker starts to make this class become really appealing because he's an elite prospect with Pac-12 schools all over the the region trying to get him, but he's a top 100 player nationally. That might be kind of that key if he commits here soon. Now, you know, it was kind of lightly reported at the time, but Jalil Tucker was also on campus a couple of weeks ago for that same spring practice that JT was at. So him coming up, he, he trains with former Duck legend Akili Smith. Jalil Tucker starts to really get momentum building i think if he commits sooner rather than later and then we start to see Oregon start to make their climb like we've been used to seeing the last couple of years so i think a guy like jaleel tucker can really be the guy that gets the snowball moving 
I know I said I'd get you out on that question, but you said something I have to ask. What's made Oregon so dominant in San Diego? I think it's, you know, a couple of things. I, I think obviously you, you go back to, you know, Akili in the late nineties. Now none of these kids were even born when Akili played right. at Oregon, but Oregon players that former Oregon players, that they're, they're very vocal, very supportive on social media and you see them flourish. And then you go back about, Oh, nine, 10 classes ago when Tyree and Tyrell Robinson yep. were recruited out of San Diego and Darren Carrington was also in that same class. Well, those guys still have influence in San Diego. Those guys played at Lincoln High School. Well, at least the, the Robinson brothers played at, at Lincoln. And Lincoln's been kind of the, the public school power there the last couple of, of years. And a lot of those guys are, are seeing the success that those players in San Diego had when they went to Oregon. And I think it, it becomes appealing. You know, San Diego for being in Southern California, it never has felt like it's a Southern California school, but it's also one of those schools, those, those cities that those kids had never felt like they were locks to go to SC or UCLA. You know, I, I remember one year where the top three players in San Diego were top 100 players and all three went to Oklahoma and two of them went on to the NFL and, and had been starters in the NFL. So San Diego for being, you know, three hours, two and a half hours south of USC and UCLA there's never been you – know, now, granted, you have Reggie Bush who went there, right. Marcus Allen who went there. Uh, but you look historically in San Diego players, it had kind of been, hey, we're willing to, to leave the state altogether. They all know that the best weather in the United States of America is in San Diego. So <laughs> unless they go to San Diego State, everywhere is going to be a step down weather-wise. But it's a competitive thing. I think these guys realize, like, hey, if SC and UCLA don't want to treat us like we're locals, then we'll go somewhere else and we'll torture them for the next three or four years. And so I think there's a lot of pride with former San Diego uh, players that played at Oregon. Um, but it's also just been, you know, it's still in the Pac-12 footprint, but it's outside of California. Hey, you know, Oregon's a good place to go if you're from San Diego. It's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast with Brandon Huffman of 24-7 Sports. Brandon, thanks for coming on. We'd love to get this going again when we get closer to football season and official visits are really in swing. Sounds good, man. Appreciate you having me on. The wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to The Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply.